Hello and welcome to another packed episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Chandra of the Mighty Asian Dub Foundation. Stephen goes into great detail about the early years of the band, how they formed, his musical influences, and also talks about the upcoming Brexit single plans, Coming Over Here, which features Stuart Lee. Anyway, it's a fantastic chat. I'll be back at the end to talk about how you can get involved in social media and all those sort of things. But in the meantime, here's Stephen. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Stephen Chandra. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Chris. Brilliant. Actually. We were just talking off mic there. You've been, you've had a busy few days. You were telling me about uh, the new single and everything, the, the internet uh, campaign, everything for this Christmas number one. Brexit number one, not Brexit. Christmas. Brexit number one, yeah. Yeah, because, it, well, you see, we're not going for Christmas. No. Um, we're actually telling people to start downloading on Christmas Day. So it becomes number one on January the 1st. And it's got to be a, definitely past midnight, between midnight and New Year's Day, has it, for this to work? Between midnight on Christmas and New Year's Day, I think. Yeah. But yeah. there'll be more, added, you know, the instructions are out there, so... Um, We'll obviously make them more specific as the time gets closer. Yeah, yeah. Kind of and up front, relatively, really. Yeah, you've got lots of time to download it. Yeah. Uh, what, whilst we're on the subject of it, how did, how did this collaboration with uh, Stuart Lee come about? Again, totally unplanned. You know, I mean, what it was is we had a track. Um, Nathan Flutebox brought in a track. I can't, we started, started playing on it as a band, you know. Hmm. Had a really good jam with it, you know. It was a very... It was, kind of one of these things where we just jammed and so I jammed loads of different guitars in the studio had a good time with no aim we had a vocal on it which didn't really work activator wasn't happy with it so I was left with this really good instrumental uh wondering what to do with it you know and um I went down to a festival called Sea Change in Devon which was very nice and uh, Stuart Lee was there and he was um do it. He was, do, you know, he does a lot of sort of documentary interview type thing. He's he's, he's more than, much more than the comedian actually. He's quite a. Mm. Um, so he was he was doing um, a documentary on a very old indie band who I actually quite like called Nightingales, and he was interviewing Adrian Sherwood, who we're, ADF is a you know really consider ourselves children of Adrian Sherwood mm. musically. And um, and uh, then I got home, had the track, and I realised, oh, Stuart this is the one that did that brilliant sketch coming over here. Started listening to it. And then said, oh, all right, you know, light bulb, you know, <laughs> just start doing it. Did it in an afternoon, really, an evening, maybe, I think a, a, a few hours. And then I thought, well, this is just a, this is pure, en- I did it for pure entertainment, self-entertainment. Yeah. You know? I had no aim or anything with it. Then I sent it to Bobby. I said, I know we won't be able to use this, but it sounds pretty good, I think. And he said, well, I, I know Stuart's people. I'll, give, I'll ask him, I'll send it to him. And I went, mm-hmm. yeah, really? Okay. And Stuart came back saying, yeah, he really likes it. And I went, oh, okay, great. So we got all the right stuff and, you know, the permissions and stuff. And it was due to come out on the album in March. Of course, the album got put back, you know, by six months. The plan was to make a video for every album. And when we got round to coming over here, you know, London had gone down into tier two, what have you, and all the gigs, Stuart's gigs were cancelled. So voila, we could make a video. And then, you know, by the time it got ready, it was like a month before Brexit madness, you know. So, so that's honestly how, how, how it all came together. It's really like serendipity. It's crazy, isn't it, how these sort of lightning in a bottle moments happen because, we, you know, yeah. 
a chance kind of meeting and a re reconnection to something that you've seen and then all of a sudden you've yeah, got something right. that was engaging. You know, most things happen that way, Christopher, I think, you know, yeah. I, I, I kind of think that they, uh, when you look at things, when I look at sort of success, whatever you want to call it, what I consider success, artistic success or, you know, it always takes a whole load of factors all working in tandem for it to kind of, uh, to, to, to really happen, you know. Did you, do, you think this, rare. Yeah. do you think this has kind of been your ethos throughout your musical career then with uh, Asian Dub Foundation? It's like, you know, taking a seed of an idea and just letting it run through and, and finding, you know, nuance and, and, and different types of sounds anywhere you can find it. I think for me personally, it's like that, actually. Hmm. But the band is a, a collective ethos. I, I wouldn't say that that's been the whole trajectory of the band as a collective being all the various members over time, founders like Dr. Das and things, they had a very clear idea. Oni Ruta had a very clear idea of what, was do what he was doing, you know. Whereas I was a bit more kind of like, a sort of bit more bonkers element, do you know what I mean? Is it this kind of the, the punk, is it the punk element for you then, that kind of, this, this, the chaotic punk elements that you bring to the band in terms of the guitar work and that, that, that kind of drive that ethos? Well, it complemented it, I think. I think it, it, it created a larger collective ethos of the band and the sound. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Who were uh, yeah. your, um, in terms of like getting to grips with the guitar then in, in the early days, who, right. were your, yeah. who were your guitar heroes? Who, who got into it? Okay. <laughs> well, do you know the, the thing that really made, no, I'm, I'm pretty ancient. I know, I know I look a lot younger, <laughs> but I'm pretty ancient. So I actually got into music quite seriously like just before punk really happened, right? Yeah. So 75 to 76, I was an absolute science fiction nut, quite serious science fiction. I got into very serious science fiction very early on. I discovered Philip K. Dick early on. I read the original book of Man Who Fell to Earth with mm. David Bowie on the front cover, and I was too young to go and see the film. <laughs> you know? It was at the cinema, I was too young, so I bought the book. Yeah. And it's got David Bowie's cover on the book, right? Which is the same <laughs> cover as Lowe. But cut a long story short, I like music that sent me to space or the future or something like that. So I remember like Kraftwerk was big. But in 75, I bought three singles. I bought Space Oddity and I bought Chichiku Park, which is all that space. They're all reissues, all of them. Mm. And good vibrations, you know. And uh, I, I loved all the spacey sound. And I found out that a lot of them were coming from the guitar, especially on Space Oddity. And then the one that hit me was... Um, I got the first two Pink Floyd albums in a package because someone told me that they made spacey music, right? Yeah. So I, I remember the moment I put the needle on the record of a crappy old stereo and heard Astronomy Domine come at me in stereo. We'd only just got this stereo. It's one of the first records I got heard in stereo. 1967, so all the guitars are really like pan madly. Yeah. And those opening guitar chords of Astronomy Domine that was it. I don't think I made the decision then, but that was it. I just thought, God, can you get an instrument that sounds like that? And it went, and it went to the next track called Lucifer Sam, which is this sort of really psyched out Batman type riff, you know? Yeah. And uh, that's it. I mean, and I didn't realize that I was actually listening to the version of Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd. That was actually a really big influence on what was to be the punk groups like Sex Pistols and The Damned, and then into the post-punk era, which is when I really started playing in bands. 
Mm. So I had an interesting beginning, actually. And that's what really made me want to play guitar. And plus, the other thing was what actually was available to me sonically. My dad was an electrician, in a, on a, fact, a factory floor electrician. And, I mean, um, parents were amazing, really, when I look back. You know, they bought me a cheap guitar, 20 quid Woolworths job. Remember Woolworths? <laughs> Caves, they had their own guitar brand. <laughs> it's 28 quid, I think. And uh, I, I said, I need an amp. He said, I, my dad got me an amp. But what his amp was, was this, this old box with these two big knobs on it. Yeah, yeah. And a wooden speaker with wire gauze, right? And you plug the guitar in that by a wire. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah it was, it was little bare wires. Of it. it was really dangerous, actually. And it made the most god-awful, violent distortion. It was just pure. Um, people would come around and think that I was the best guitarist ever. But not because I was doing anything. I didn't know any chords or anything. The sound just sounded like something. Air crash. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then when I went... I, I got a summer job in the office at this factory place. And then when I saw all around the factory area, I saw these speakers up in the, <laughs> basically my dad had nicked a, li- a really cheap public address system. Oh, right, yeah. My, my amp. So I think it's those two things, really. <laughs> Trying to make sounds that illustrated space or science fiction or future and having the most vicious, nastiest sound ever. I mean, that was the grounding. Plus, being brought up on classical Indian music. Yeah. Means that I have to stop myself, but I'll be, I'll quite, I'd be quite happy just playing one chord, all E notes. I tune the guitar so they're all E and just play it. I'm quite happy to play that for two hours. I, I, I have to stop myself because mm. I was brought up on classical sit- sitar music as well, mm. which is the drone. So I love things that are in one key and just stay the same for hours, which is mm. why I like the German stuff so much, like Kraut, you know, the, um, I like can and stuff like that, you know. I like things that stay the same for like an hour, you know. When did you kind of venture into sort of uh, chord progressions and then sort of trying to write songs and music? That's a good question. Never did, really. I got a guitar book because I got it at a jumble sale. It was 5p at jumble sale and it had chords in it. It was... 10 years of the who so the only the only songs i can play are things like pinball wizard right <laughs> and but then i just stopped playing anybody else's songs you know and the big influence then was things like joy division and gang of four mm. and what that was so the first bands i was in i was desperate to try and sound like joy division um another guy in the band really wanted to sound like the stranglers and uh, and you see those those bands were bass and drum orientated right mm. and the guitar kind of fitted on top public image of course in bands i kind of started playing with bands that had very strong bass lines and tight well we tried to get the drummers to do it sort of never-ending robotic kind of drum beats which was the post-punk thing so i learned to play with a band playing over strong bass and drums you know so, uh, and then, you know, then I got into hip hop. I got into funk big time, dub reggae, acid house. I was very into, and I, I put down the guitar altogether, got drum machines and computers and stuff. Then I was in an ambient techno group called Higher Intelligence Agency, which is my first sort of bit of what you might call success or recognition. I wasn't even playing guitar mm. in that. I got booted out of that group. And then Dr. Das asked me to come and join ADF, 
with a guitar that I'd left against the radiator and the back was melted because I'd just forgotten about it. Oh, wow. So I came back with a sensibility that was as much determined by acid house and programming. You kind of formed at one of those kind of education workshops. It's kind of, that's how they formed and isn't it essentially? Yes, uh, that's back, right. Because it's I'm, like a workshop. Then it became a little sound system formed to do anti-racist benefits, which yeah. is why it was called Asian Dub Foundation. Because there was really no, there was no plan whatsoever. It was just that John Pandit, said, oh, we need a name for this act. Because, and, and what we want to do is we want to encourage young Asians to get involved in the anti-fascist fight. That's yeah. why it's called Asian Dub Foundation, right? Yeah, no yeah. other reason. Yeah. And um, then I came in like about four or five months after they'd started. They'd already used me on some music. They'd sampled me already. Mm. Um, I came in and I think Oni Ruto actually really wanted to make it more of a solid band and I'd had that background, you know? Mm. So it kind of went from there. That was like, I think about May, 1994. How did you guys kind of gel in terms of the sound? Was it quite difficult to get? No, no. Or was it something that happened quite quickly? It didn't take that long looking back. I remember we started, I did the first gig about June, 94. And then I remember about three or four months later, Mm. Turning to Dida, it was like only like, how old was he then? He must have only been like 15 or 16. I'm in my mid-twenties, I was saying to Dida. He turned around to me, both said to each other at the same time, we've got to carry this on, man. We did a gig where we were supporting Fundamental, Transglobal Underground, and all these nation acts. We were the first act on. And it just felt so fantastic. I think there's a bit of film of it. And uh, we just said, oh, we've got to keep doing this, you know what I mean? Mm. And I got a, feel, a real euphoric feeling and I really felt like it's an interesting thing because it was the first, I played in loads of bands, done loads of music, but this was the first thing that I really, really believed in. Mm. You know, I just said, the world must hear this. I had no business plan or a, we didn't have any. I just really believed the world has to hear this. It needs to, you know. Because it's an amazing driving force. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, at the time you had, I'm not saying you were probably against definitely going against the grain but definitely going against what culturally was happening in terms of music (laughs) and so yeah you were you weren't obviously uh, an indie group but you had that kind of um i know that i keep going back to punk but because i i think i i was into you guys because of the yeah mainly the guitars the rapping which i was very new to um mm. the, the urban sound yeah it, when i was at college it was kind of a, quite an exciting time there was lots of stuff going on politically and mm. things and i was feeling yeah. quite energized about stuff and it was kind of like an antidote to brit pop in a way whilst i really enjoyed that music and the indie classic indie if you like mm. you guys were bringing something definitely different to the palette were you conscious that you were you were really trying to drill something into into the into the uk that was not there uh yes <laughs> yes definitely I, I wouldn't put it quite like that but no i i think in general i think you're absolutely spot on actually yeah, yeah we were on a mission there's no doubt i mean oni rutter had such an amazing musical philosophy john had an incredible music background you know he was a dj he was a massive collection and and myself we were quite similar in many ways we were all people who were you know, had this sort of, you know, South Asian influences from our parents. We were all around, the, the, the older members, we were around the same age. 
and we'd been through punk, post-punk reggae dub and politics. And we'd all been very inspired by black power movement, black Panthers and things like this. Mm. We all exactly had this kind of grounding, you know, we was quite similar that way. Whereas, and then we were working with someone who was, you know, like only 15, 16, you know, and he had the jungle. That was his music. Yeah. And we were so excited by that music. I just remember when I first went to my first ADF rehearsal, the DJ and the MC that those guys were doing, that Dita was doing and John was playing. I mean, I heard the music, but my God, it blew my head off. Absolutely yeah. blew my head off. It was the best music that I've heard up to that point. It, jungle, and I mean jungle, not drum and bass, which is what it morphed into. It's the most exciting music I'd ever heard of that place at, at, up to that time. It had a, a dub reggae bass line. It had distorted bass. It had incredibly high speed drums. I love the speed. There's mm. not many dance musics that you can actually dance to that are really fast, all right? Yeah, yeah. Not really. Most dance music or music that you move to, groove-wise, reggae, hip-hop, house, it's all a certain tempo, but Jungle was like flying off into punk speed. It's punk tempo jump, Jungle, but it's got a reggae bass line that you can mm. dance to. And the drums, the way they program the drums, unintentionally, some intentionally, went into free jazz. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. drums were very live. It's not like house at all, which is rigid and very electronic. The weird thing about Jungle is the drums sound really organic. They sound like a mad 50s, 60s free drummer, you know, mm. on speed, free jazz, <laughs> or jazz sound to it even. What we did, which no one else did, I can safely say that no one else did this, was we had live bass and live guitar over jungleist breakbeats. No one else did that. I no. mean, Ronnie Size did some brilliant stuff quite soon after with live instrumentation, but it was still more on this sort of cool, sophisticated jazz tip, though it could get hardcore. But we were like, instead of punky reggae party, like the Bob Marley song, ours was like a punky jungle party, a lot with a live reggae dub bass, you know, and guitar. You know, so I, I developed a sort of jungleist guitar playing. I was just, I was actually one of my proudest moments in my entire life. I was sitting around with a couple of Dido's friends, like I was about 14, 15, and I was playing guitar. I said, all right, do a rock thing. I said, yeah, I did something. And he goes, um, and he goes, do a funky thing, you know, a funky dancey hip. I played some bit of what. And then he goes, do jungle. And I did jungle on the guitar. And it's like, they were just looking at me saying, oh yeah, that's jungle. I go, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a track on the first album called PKB, which is yeah. jungle guitar. It's just dampened strings with a load of phase on it, not playing any notes, just using the hand as a, as a rhythmic thing and it phasing all over the place. Um, you know, I was like, I had these kids saying, oh yeah, that's the jungle guitar. <laughs> it definitely worked. Yeah, it did. I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it set me on a, off on an interesting journey with guitar. A lot of bands preceding you, I guess, or like dance outfits like Faithless yeah. and others that I can't, brought that kind of band energy to stage. But you were kind of yeah. already already doing it there with live MCs and, and live bass, live, live percussion, live guitar. And so, you know, do you think that you maybe were like, you, you kind of founded that kind of movement in a way? No, I don't think we founded any movement at all. I think that we were definitely the first to have live bass and live guitar. Yeah. over raw jungleist 
beats. I, I didn't hear anyone else do it. And, and I thought that it was going to be like a few years back. <laughs> that is what I thought. I thought, you know, we had the indie dance thing in the late 80s. Basically, a lot of indie bands, the Stone Roses. But Happy Mondays, I think, were the most successful at it musically for me. I thought they did some great stuff. They got they had that kind of funky, lazy, sort of stony, mm. uh, uh, slightly hip-hop, slightly house. They had a great rhythm. And, and, and that was the basis of the indie dance sort of vibe. And there were loads of, then loads of bands did it, you know, just had one beat. With yeah. indie guitars going dang, 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 get dang, get dang, dang, you know. But the, the Mondays really did have a good groove. But um, I thought that was going to happen with Jungle, you see. Yeah. I thought, oh, there's going to be loads and loads of groups that come out that discover this. It's just going to do live bands and, you know, it's going to be loads of jungle punk bands, right? But there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people that dipped into it, like David Bowie and stuff. There was a couple of other people that did it. But yeah. no, one, no one had it. It was like, oh, this is a jungle track we've got, but no one had it at the actual core of the group, if you see what mm. I mean. When did you start getting um, label interest then? Was it something, because you, you had like a... Well, actually, Oni Ruto had already sorted that out. You know? Okay. He'd already sorted it. He got, it was very quick because they started doing all these uh, benefits and stuff. And they already m- managed to get, just as I joined the band, Nation released a 12-inch of theirs that they just recorded up in the community music room, you know so they already got that so we already had the kind of nation thing going so that's when the first album was on I mean you know it, it, it came pretty fast because it was a difficult thing to ignore because it was so unique and so so committed and so real you know yeah, yeah. so the nation they did they, they picked it up you know and it was it, yeah, you see the interesting thing was it seemed right for nation but it actually wasn't because you think of all those groups like Transglobal Underground, Loop Guru, and things like that. It was like we were like almost like the Sex Pistols of that, if you see what I mean. You know, so we played these things, and there were lots of sort of hippie, exotic kind of stuff. And then we'd come on, and it was like you know, it was kind of a bit threatening. You know, I think the one one of the really cool things that I really liked about ADF that was apparent early on is that we would actually get people from quite different musical backgrounds. You know. We get people from a rock background who is, who'd come up and say, oh, I don't listen to sort of, you know, program beats and that kind of thing. I don't listen to dance music much, you know. And they didn't even know what Jungle was, right? Mm. You know, those, um, but I really like, you know, I really like this. This is really good. And then we'd have the same on the other side where people say, well, I don't normally listen to stuff. I mean, friends, a lot of friends, actually, because we, we were more towards a dance music ethos and and club sort of underground sort of rave kind of vibe yeah you know and then we'd have people from that scene who we knew more actually come and say oh i don't i normally only listen to djs but it's really good to see that up on stage with those beats that's the future you know people would say you know so it was a very very good thing i mean you know listen within this was really great in the early years it kind of doesn't make sense so much now but like say one week, we were front page news, front page of a magazine called Folk Roots. Yeah. Mm. And then we were also the center spread of Koran. We would play, we would play reggae festivals. We'd play world music festivals. We'd go on tour, you know, went on tour with the Beastie Boys, uh, Radioheads. 
uh, played loads of gigs with Primal Scream, who really helped us out. That's probably how you came to us, I imagine, Christopher. Right. I, I guess so. I think I just, I know I had, you know, I had your first couple of albums and Melody Maker and Enemy used to supply uh, cassettes, didn't they, on, on the covers? Yes, and, 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 and you were on a couple of those. And I just remember just reading about you and seeing you and any any footage I could see from like Glastonbury or any festivals, yeah, yeah. just seeing you guys play live. Of course, now it's it's amazing because you can just relive everything on, it, on yeah, uh, YouTube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the time, you had to just wait around to press play or record on something to try and hope to catch the, you know you guys mm-hmm. playing. I just remember being completely blown away by it and then... And thinking, um, I even started playing, try, you know, trying to do loops and different types of guitar styles just to try and. Oh right, really? Oh yeah, cool. yeah. And then I, I got into, yeah, I got into all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, you try different things, don't oh, you? That's when you, nice when you... That yeah, that's really cool. Thank you. <laughs> that's all right. Really cool. yeah. yeah, when I came, I think it was the perfect. I was the perfect age. It was just this whole movement. Everything in the nineties was exciting, and you know. Um, yeah, I'll tell you. People have said this to me and I think it's a bit true you know when I listen to our stuff it almost like it seems more relevant now mm. sort of like the 90s was kind of actually relatively benign compared to now you know and like a lot of the songs we're singing we were singing about then seem to make sense more now you know what I mean it's bizarre mm. really like things like all the you know I don't know if you know that song Fortress Europe from the fourth album Fortress Europe which is one of our biggest tunes you know um Whenever the immigration issue gets really put to the front, some quite a few people tweet it out or share it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the opening lines of it are 2022 and European order robot guards patrolling the border. And you see people on, if you look on YouTube underneath it, they're going, only two years till 2022, all this kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? So do you you feel there's, there's, there's always going to be a place for the Asian Dub Foundation as soon as long as there's something for you guys to to, to get behind and to write about because I mean everything there seems to always be some sort of either political or, or, or challenge that we need to yeah. uh, a band to come along and you know do something right with well that's an interesting question but in a way it sort of almost makes us a bit um I don't know like some kind of jukebox waiting to be put in at the right time <laughs> yeah 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 it's not really like that i think there is a certain like an unwritten sort of spirit of a adf constitution if you see there's a certain thing that sounds like adf it, it's funny it's, it's sometimes it's not quite sure what adf is but you're damn sure what it's not do you know what i mean oh yeah definitely that's a good way of defining a band identity what you could never imagine as a band doing do you know what i mean and that's what defines the band you know mm. it's it's very unlikely that we do anything particularly soppy you know i think mm. there are a couple of tracks that we did that are best forgotten do you know what i mean you probably wouldn't even find them the, the nearest i could get to what i've just said you know yeah yeah but it's always going to have it's got to have the bass at the heart of it but it's also got to feel a bit live and raw it's got to have that little sort of punk raw oppositional edge but it doesn't necessarily mean a political with a capital P opposition. You know, it can be oppositional in the way that Little Richard sounded oppositional in 1956 or, you know, just the acid house raves felt like they weren't singing about politics. Really, but you felt that there was like, yeah, this is like, this is something where it's vaguely defined, but we're dancing, but we're dancing against the way of life we don't want. Do you see mm. what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely that's immovable, 
with ADF. I think without that, you don't ADF, do you know what I mean? I'll tell you one thing, this is a thought I've had. I mean, I always considered us pushing at the edge, of, you know, really, we're always taking in new ideas, always, still now, you know. I mean, the opening track on the first album is kind of a trap, ADF is sort of version of trap, do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, you know, which is quite a relatively new sort of American dance form. There's things like that. But in some ways now I see that in some ways we're preserving something, you know, something a little that you can't quite describe. Yeah. You know, sort of like thing which is kind of just automatically against the way things are, you know what I mean? Definitely. That is found in all kinds of music, whether it be jazz, whether it be rock and roll, whether it be scar or dub rig. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously 2020 is done and done, done and dusted, but what, what, what are your plans for 2021 in terms of... <laughs> Good question. Uh, <laughs> were you were you kind of had a tour? Did you have a tour in place for this year? Yeah, yeah, we had loads yeah, yeah. Of it. all gone down. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, there's not much point making plans now. I have no idea what's going on. And to be honest, this this insane diversion that we've had now with the coming over here thing and this crazy Brexit number one campaign, which is so like. It's another universe, you know, it's like, <laughs> so, so it's like, that wasn't planned. Because of the collaboration element of things as well has always worked really well. And I know, uh, will you be kind of looking to explore different types, different types of uh, collaborations in the future again? Oh, well, on this one, there were so many good ones. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think we've ever done an album with so many. I mean, Anna Tijoux from um, Chile. I mean, she's a mate. She's huge. She's like a real like. She's a real thing. She's a leader. She's a kind of cultural political leader. That's mm-hmm. often you get in South America. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, they say that musicians are often looked to as cultural and political leaders. Mm-hmm. So to get her on a track like that was just amazing. Right? And her vibe, um, and it was a very different for us tr- track again because it was one of the few tracks that didn't have live bass in our history. There's been a couple of key tracks where we didn't use live bass, we used electronic bass. And this one, I could see us doing a lot more like that. The one with 47 song, I mean, this is a group of Palestinian exiles and the song that we did together is about them. Like we did, we got together with them. I'm a huge fan. I got other members of the band in. I mean, what kind of music can I say it is? This kind of music is called Shabstep. It's electronic mm-hmm. Shabstep, which is very much a, a kind of, dance from that that region of the world but but they're very much a live band you know that that song was like they came in actor came in with some really good lyrics and um the song is about not being able to get across borders and that mm. is their life as a touring band so many countries only half of them can get into they had to do a they had to do a tour of belgium with just two of them because they wouldn't let two of them in you know and then like um I said to him, oh, we had a day in the studio. I said, okay, guys, should we get together in a couple of weeks, finish this off? He says, oh, well, it will have to be before next Monday. And it's like Saturday. And I'm going, I said, why is that? Well, because we've got to go, two of us have got to go back to Jordan for three months. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, to get our visa stamped. You know, and they're Palestinian exiles, man. You know what I mean? So that song was just about that, how we feel about it, how they feel about it. Do you know what I mean? So that was, that was amazing. And the vibe on that is, I oh, know, it's very moving in many ways. And then, of course, Stuart, you know, she's like, where did that come from? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have a favourite track to play live out of everything in your sort of back catalogue? Oh, what a great question. Um, 
I never get tired of playing Rebel Warrior. I never get tired of Fortress Europe. I suppose you can always tell that by the tracks that stay in the set. Yeah, so, I mean, Fortress Europe always seems to, I don't know, just always, there's something about it that just kicks off, you know? Rebel Warrior from the first album, that just always works. I think we've ended our set with that for like 20 years now, you know? It's always, I don't know, it just always works. There's some things that just work perennially, you know? Can't imagine ever dropping, you know? Yeah. And I don't get bored of playing it. Stephen, I'm going to have to let you go. Been, it's been amazing speaking to you. I've really, really enjoyed it. And I'm yeah, so thanks happy. a lot. Yeah. I'm so yeah. pleased you said. And uh, yeah, all the best for yeah, everything. Thanks you didn't get, give me a chance to, to have a go at Britpop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, very clever. I really admire that. Okay. Well, listen, I mean... <laughs> No, I'm only joking. No, no, it's fine. We can you can come on now at my uh, in my next uh, podcast series. We've got if my wife if my wife lets me do another one. Uh, oh. I've got at least two podcasts on the go at the moment. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, she she says, why don't you do something uh, that's actually going to make us any money? And I said, wow, you know, <laughs> you never know. One you day, what, music and money. <laughs> yeah. What world is she living in? <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Well, thank you again so much. All right, mate. You take, take care. Take care, bud. Bye, bye. Bye-bye. Massive thanks to Stephen for joining me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to him about all things Asian Dove Foundation. Good luck with the Brexit single. I'll be downloading on Christmas Day for sure. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to share with your friends. It really helps. If you want to financially support me, in the show notes is the link to my Ko-Fi page, which is that virtual coffee thing. Uh, it's £3.00. And you can do that as many times as, as you like or not at all. It's up to you, but it really helps. Also, writing reviews, subscribing and star ratings are another great way to help build you know, the podcast and, and get it seen by other people. So if you could do that, that's fantastic. Social media is another thing. I'm on there on Back to Britpop. Just search that on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I do my best to tweet and posts and all those sorts of things um there's one more podcast hopefully that i'm going to release before christmas if it all goes to plan and then i'll be back in the new year with more episodes hopefully probably not in the same frequency but let's see what happens in the meantime have a great week take care thanks for your support